Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on Theana Money, we are talking about eminent domain. Perhaps it is a topic you have heard of before, perhaps you have not. But either way, this will be an important episode for you to listen to in order to learn more about eminent domain and what the Bible has to say about it. What? The Bible has stuff to say about eminent domain? Surely that cannot be correct. Our pietistic and R2K brothers in Christ tell us. But indeed, it does. And we will spend some time in this episode looking at the account of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21 to see what implications concerning eminent domain we can draw from it And that won't be the only passage of scripture we look at today. Before we dive into that, I would really appreciate it that that if you like The Money, you just take a moment to share it with a friend, rate it on your podcast catcher, or give it a like or a heart or whatever system your favorite podcast catcher uses. And if you appreciate this episode and learn from it, then please uh, share it with a friend or even a few of them so they can listen to it as well. First, I want to give you my definition of eminent domain, and then I will read some definitions I found online. I'm writing down my definition before looking up those others. Otherwise, I would, even if unintentionally, pull from them some. So you get to hear my definition of it, with no attempt to hide my biases against eminent domain in it. And then I can read you two or three definitions from online. Here is my definition of eminent domain and all its biased glory. According to current United States laws and eminent domain, if the government wants your property for some reason or another, like to uh, build a new park or expand a freeway, they have to offer you what they deem to be a fair market value for the property. So far, so not worst case scenario. But what the government and the assessor they pay to determine the fair market value of your land What they think the fair market value is, that might be much lower than what literally anyone and everyone else, including other assessors and including that, including that same assessor, if someone else was paying him, would determine the value of your property to be. But they're the government, so take the money, leave what was formerly your property, and be glad they didn't offer you less. Here is a definition of eminent domain from Cornell University's Legal Information Institute. Eminent domain refers to the power of the government to take property and convert it into public use, referred to as a taking. The Fifth Amendment provides that the government may only exercise this power if they provide just compensation to the property owners. A taking may be the actual seizure of property by the government, or the taking may be in the form of a regulatory taking which occurs when the government restricts a person's use of their property to the point of it constituting a taking. The Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution mandates that if the government takes private property for public use, 
the government must provide just compensation. In Cole v. United States, 91 U.S. 367, 1875, the Supreme Court held that the government may seize property through the use of eminent domain as long as it is as long as it appropriates just compensation to the owner of the property. And Loretto v. Teleprompter Manhattan, CATV Corp. 458 U.S. 419, 1982. The Supreme Court clarified that when the government engages in a taking and implements a permanent physical occupation of the property, it must provide the owner with just compensation, the property owner with just compensation, even if the area is small and the government's use does not greatly affect the owner's economic interest. Typically, a just compensation is determined by an appraisal of the property's fair market value. This means that any sentimental or other value held by the owner will not be considered in calculating compensation. Merriam-Webster defines eminent domain this way, a right of a government to take private property for public use by virtue of the superior dominion of the sovereign power over all lands within its jurisdiction. Lastly, Britannica defines eminent domain like this. Eminent domain, power of government to take property for public use without the owner's consent. Constitutional provisions in most countries require the payment of compensation to the owner. In countries with unwritten constitutions, such as the United Kingdom, the supremacy of parliament makes it theoretically possible for property to be taken without compensation, but in practice compensation is paid. Confiscation is the term most often used in contrast to eminent domain to uh, describe the taking of property by the state without compensation. There have been few legislative attempts in the United States to control or define what is just compensation. In general, the judicial definition is that just compensation is the fair market value at the time of the taking, the market value including not only the existing use value but also the best use in which the property may be put. So the long and short of it is that eminent domain means the government has the right to make you an offer you can't refuse on your property. Not that it will be so good you cannot refuse it. It might be an honest fair value of your house or it might be an offer lower than what those people calling you trying to buy your house would offer. You know, the people that nonstop call you trying to give you a way below fair market value on your house might even be below what they would offer you. But you have to accept it whether any reasonable person would call it fair or a total ripoff. It's an offer you can't refuse because you're not allowed to refuse the offer from the government. There are technicalities and details to eminent domain here, but more or less, these things I've just explained and those definitions I quoted catch the essence of it. The rest of the nuances can be left to lawyers if they want to nitpick something I said. Before we dive into the scriptures, I want to take a few minutes to look at what Rush Genie says on this topic in his Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1. On page 509, Rush Juni writes, Eminent domain is the claim to sovereignty by the state over all the property within the state, and it is the assertion of the right to appropriate all or any part thereof to any public or state use deemed necessary by the state. Compensation for the appropriated property is normally given, but is not regarded as a binding limitation to the state. Eminent domain is an assertion of sovereignty, and in scripture is ascribed to God alone. Because of his right of eminent domain, God brought judgment upon Egypt, Exodus 9, 22-29. Because of his right of eminent domain, 
God, moreover, gave the law of the domain in Israel and declared it to be for all the earth and to all people. For all the earth is mine. Exodus 19.5 On the next page he writes, The eminent domain of the state was not recognized in Israel, as the incident of Naboth's vineyard makes clear. 1 Kings 21 Although it is prophesied as one of the consequences of apostasy from God the king. 1 Samuel 8.14 For reference, 1 Samuel 8.14 reads, He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And is where Samuel tells the Israelites all of the bad things that a king will do if they decide to get a king. With all of that in mind, let's take some time to look at more scripture as it relates to this concept. Ezekiel 46.18 Now the prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, mistreating them out of their possession. He shall give his son's inheritance from his own possession, so that my people will not be scattered, anyone from his possession. Now to properly follow the first three rules of hermeneutics, which are one context, two context, and three context, I can't drag that verse kicking and screaming out of its historical situation into the present and use it as an axe to grind against eminent domain. In the Old Testament, there were laws on land and inheritance because they were directly given by God to specific families and were to stay in those families. As the people multiplied and that inheritance decreased with each generation, it would have pushed Israel outward to land around the nation and also to economic activity that requires less land than farming, which would have over generations made Old Testament Israel more productive and see more technological development than the world would end up seeing until just a few centuries ago. All of this did not happen because they were not obedient to God, and I talked more about this in episode 67, which was titled, The Jubilee and Loan Forgiveness. Ezekiel was writing around the time when the exile began, and after the exile, the specific inheritance to each family given in the days of Joshua was no longer valid, as people were not on those specific plots of land anymore, and since the northern ten tribes were basically gone and Whoever was left was intermixed with various Gentile groups. The original inheritances could not be restored to what they once were. When the people returning from the exile divvied up the land, there could to some degree still be inheritance laws in place to mimic the pre-exile inheritance laws, but it was not the same as originally, the better part of a millennia before. And once the destruction of Jerusalem and all of those genealogical records happened in AD 70, any further inheritance of land based on family could not be done. We today should have inheritance laws that mimic the eternal morals rooted in God's nature of the Old Testament inheritance laws. We also recognize that those were for a specific time and place, for a specific people, on a specific land that had been divided by the divine guidance and revelation of God. God has not given such special revelation on how to divide land among its inhabitants since, and I do not believe he will ever do it again throughout the rest of church history. The previous couple verses, 16 and 17, help to show how this was related to those Old Testament laws. Now, all of that being said, there is still much we can glean from Ezekiel 46.18 and apply to today, including applications related to eminent domain. First and foremost, the civil magistrate is not allowed to take the personal property of one of his citizens in order to give it as a gift to his children. 
If I owned 100 acres near Washington, D.C., President Biden could not seize it in order to give it to Hunter Biden, no matter how badly Hunter wanted to take that field and sell it for drug money. And by the way, since this would be wrong to do with the citizens of that civil magistrate's own country, how much worse would it be for him to do so with the citizens of another country, where the civil magistrate has no authority? So as much as the example I just gave would be wrong, it would be even worse if President Biden seized the land in Ukraine and gave that land to Hunter for him to sell for drug money, since Ukraine is a different nation. The civil magistrate must give his children gifts and inheritance from his own possessions, not from land or goods or money that he seized from his children, not by a rightful taxation, but by mistreatment. Based on this principle from the verse, I think we can also conclude that it is wrong for a civil magistrate to take from one of his citizens in order to make that person's property common property to all. Yes, that is not exactly what the verse is condemning, but is it not a reasonable consequence or implication of it? The exact wording in scripture of the seventh commandment does not prohibit lust, yet Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that a prohibition on lust was always part of the seventh commandment. The fifth commandment only mentions the specific superiors of father and mother. But we all understand that it refers at least to superiors in all three spheres of sovereignty, not just the household, and even to superiors in other forms besides those three spheres as well. We should be careful when we move from the explicit words of scripture to its consequences, but sometimes the consequences are both good and necessary. So Ezekiel 46.18 condemns a civil magistrate taking from his citizens to enrich his children. But I think based on this and other verses of scripture, we should understand it as wrong for a civil magistrate to take from his citizens anything more than what ought to be rendered to Caesar according to scripture, which is a lot less than what most nations on the planet today charge. Scripture tells us that a tax rate of 10% or higher is a curse. And I think that the United States should charge no more than a few thousand dollars a year to any of its citizens in taxes. If you want more details on that, listen to the episode I did a while ago called Biblical Taxes. Now to look at 1 Kings 21 and the account of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. It's a familiar account in the Bible, and one I did an episode of Theonomony on a couple years ago, in episode 18. The passage has some things to teach us about eminent domain. To refresh your memory, King Ahab, one of the kings of the northern ten tribes of Israel, after the split at the beginning of Rehoboam's reign, decides that he wants the vineyard of a man named Naboth because it was right next to his palace in Jezreel. Ahab offers him a fair price for the vineyard and money, or a better field in exchange for it. But Naboth is a righteous man who wants to honor God by keeping the inheritance entrusted to his ancestors in Joshua's day and the family line. Naboth pouts about this, and his wife Jezebel, daughter of the pagan king Ethbaal and an idolatrous woman herself, has men bring up false charges against Naboth in order to have him executed so that Ahab can take possession of the field. After this, God sends Elijah to Ahab in order to condemn him and Jezebel for what they have done. To help us understand some aspects of this account a bit better, I'm going to read a couple verses out of the Legacy Standard Bible and their notes from the Reformation Study Bible. 
1 Kings 21, verse 2. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If it is good in your sight, I will give you the price of it and money. Reformation Study Bible note on that verse. In the Canaanite nations of Ahab's day, a king can seize property and personal belongings at his pleasure, because in theory all the property is owned by the royal family and only entrusted to their subjects. In Israel, God owns the land, Exodus 19, 3-8, Leviticus 25, 23, and all the people hold it as his stewards, Numbers 14, 8, and 35, 34, and, and Deuteronomy 1, 8. The powers of an Israelite monarch are limited in contrast to the powers of a Canaanite king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, 1 Samuel 8, 9 to 19, and 10, 25. When Ahab wants his neighbor's vineyard, his thought is to negotiate a purchase. Cross-reference 16, 24. Then also verse 7 reads, And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now exercise kingship over Israel? Arise, eat bread and let your heart be merry. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Reformation Study Bible Note on verse 7. Jezebel's father is king in Sidon, 1631, and her understanding of the rights of a ruler are certainly different from what the law of God prescribes. Deuteronomy 17, 14-20. Kings of the nation surrounding Israel can simply seize property for their own benefit. This passage has some important lessons we can draw as it relates to eminent domain. The civil magistrate cannot just claim land from his citizens because he is the civil magistrate. He has to buy it fair and square in the fair market where supply and demand as well as competition from other potential buyers comes into play. At least in our modern form of eminent domain, the civil magistrate does have to give you money in exchange for forcibly taking your property. So it is much better than the ancient pagan concept of the nations around Israel, and presumably most nations on the planet at that time and for centuries to come. But notice here that Naboth said no to King Ahab, no matter what Ahab offered, and Ahab had to take that no as an answer. He could not tell Naboth that he was taking the field, and here was the amount he was paying, and he had to take it, which is more or less what modern eminent domain is. And if we look several chapters earlier in the same book of the Bible, we see that Omri, Ahab's father and the previous king of the northern ten tribes, bought the hill on which he built the city of Samaria from a man named Shemer, and the name Samaria is based on that man's name. He did not force the man to give him the hill since he is the king of Israel, but he paid Shemer two talents of silver for the hill, and even named it after the man. Today the name Samaria, or Samaritan, is much more well-known than the name King Omri, so naming the field after the man gave the guy a pretty long legacy too. But that is besides our point here. The point is that he paid two talents of silver for land owned by a citizen of the nation where he was king, rather than demanding it by some right of his kingship. For the specific reference here, this all comes from 1 Kings 16.24. My ideas of taxation which I believe to be based on scripture as much as such an idea can be, drawing from the Old Testament head tax, would not leave the government much money to do things like buy land from its citizens to use for some government project. So eminent domain in whatever form it took would be a small issue.
But if the government were to still look to purchase land for a new government building or some public land or some other project, it should have to buy the property on the open market like any other person looking to buy land. If they wanted to put a new park in, not that I think that would be something the government would be doing in a theonomic society, but bear with me, and decided that my land and that of a few of my neighbors is the perfect spot, they would have to make each of us an offer. Then I have the right to take the offer or to tell them no and that no increase in the offer will change my answer or to tell them that I don't want to sell my house and move but 50k over the value of the property can convince me to change my mind. Then it is up to the government to decide if they are willing to pay that much or look elsewhere for this new park they want to build. And they definitely are not allowed to bring up false charges to get me executed and then take the land after I'm dead. I did mention Elijah's condemnation of Ahab and Jezebel in my summary of the chapter, after all. And this goes for whether the civil magistrate is looking to purchase property as the governing authority for the government, or if he is looking to purchase property for himself personally. He would definitely be abusing his authority if he were to offer a citizen way below the value of his house, but throw in a threat if the citizen does not take the offer like being convicted of a crime he did not commit, or having a much higher amount of taxes due the following year due to a quote-unquote mistake. A civil magistrate abusing his authority as a servant of God in the state sphere of sovereignty is no different than a pastor abusing his authority in the church sphere of sovereignty by spiritually manipulating his flock for his own personal gain. Ultimately, I think some Christians who clearly recognize the latter as wrong struggle to recognize the former because they think Romans 13 gives the government a free pass on basically anything it wants to do, short of one exception of telling Christians not to evangelize since that is mentioned in Acts. Maybe if the fictional example I gave happened in real life, they would recognize that as wrong because of how obvious that is. But other examples, no, they would just say Romans 13 and roll over to government abuses, just like they did in 2020. For some more information on how to properly understand the beginning of Romans 13, listen to the episode that dropped just before the biblical taxes one I mentioned a few moments ago. Now sure, there can be some upsides to eminent domain, like your commute to work being a few minutes shorter after the local highway was enlarged from two lanes each way to three, at the small cost of dozens if not hundreds of families being forced to sell their homes, and then you dealing with a few months of a much longer commute to work while they do the construction. And honestly, a few months is optimistic. Or you get a new park in your area for the small cost of a few of the families down the street from you being forced to sell their homes. Occasionally, there are upsides for the people being forced to sell, like if you have a large enough front yard that you don't have to move to get your street enlarged by a lane, just sell half your front yard to the government. You get a check, and now you have less lawn to mow. The church that owned the private school I graduated from was in a situation like this when the city government wanted to make the road to be three lanes each way instead of two. The church had enough of a grassy area between the parking lot and the road for it to not mess with them, and they got a nice check from the government for it. But I want to ask you, are the positives, especially as small as some of them are, enough to outweigh the cons of eminent domain. Maybe you think they are, 
as long as you are not the one whose home is being forced to be sold to the government. Even in that case, you see it as worth it. But government amassing and abusing of power does not come in a vacuum. With the examples of the civil magistrate going outside its sphere of authority that we like, there are the examples we don't like that comes as a package deal. And whether we like or dislike these specific examples, does that ever make it okay to go against models we see set up in scripture? In his book, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, Joel Salatin makes a comment about how prohibition set the stage for the government to tell us what we can or cannot put into our bodies. That book was published in 2016, and he was probably thinking more of raw milk laws, but I bet in the last few years he has thought back on that and made the connection between what he said there, or at least the same line of thought, and the jab mandates that swept across our nation. If you are a wife being abused by a drunkard husband, then maybe prohibition sounds great to you, but that is far outside the civil magistrate's sphere of sovereignty. And if the government can tell you that alcohol is not allowed into your body, what other things can they say that about down the road? If prohibition in some small ways opened the door to raw milk laws and jab mandates decades later, even after prohibition ended, what abuses are we opening ourselves up to by making laws that the government is allowed to buy your property and you cannot say no when they make the offer? Do we think that part of the law being that they have to pay us for the property will protect us? That still is not the ideal we saw with Ahab having to make Naboth an offer and he was perfectly able to refuse. And how easy would it be for the government to make a change to that part of the law or to strike it down altogether? Or since that would cause a stir in the public, they could leave that part on the books, but get around it in other ways, at least in part. Give the appraiser they hired to find the value of your property an extra 100 bucks if he claims that your property is worth 50k less than it actually is. Or find some way to condemn your property or force you to sell. Or force you to do some sort of expensive update to your home that costs so much you would rather sell than have to get it. Think that last one cannot happen? It doesn't take much for the local government to force you onto city sewer instead of a septic tank in the name of some sort of environmental thing because apparently your septic tank is causing climate change and killing the dolphins or something. And now you have the option to either sell your house or pay thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, for that conversion. And that is about the time when the government makes you an offer to buy your house, claiming eminent domain, and perhaps even offering you less than the value of the home by citing that expensive sewer conversion needing to be done on the property as the reason for lowering the offer. Not that they plan to do that sewer conversion themselves, since they are probably going to bulldoze the property anyways. So if you didn't catch it by now, I am not a fan of eminent domain. As I mentioned when looking at the account of Naboth's vineyard, in a theonomic sphere of sovereignty society, the government likely would not do much buying of their citizens' property, probably little to none of it. And if it does occur, the civil magistrate would have to buy it just like anyone else, by making you an offer and you are free to take it, make a counteroffer, or be like Naboth and just say that you are not interested. All of that being said, what can we do about it? Honestly, nothing right now to directly confront eminent domain. But every time you evangelize an unbeliever, 
every time you disciple a believer, every time you are a good father or mother to your children to the glory of God, every time you do something that is building the kingdom of God, and that is more than just the quote-unquote spiritual stuff you do because your whole life is quote-unquote spiritual stuff, you are slowly chipping away at the foundation of corrupt things like eminent domain. How? By growing the kingdom of God in a corrupt nation, and that means one of two things will happen. One is that God will judge the nation and it will collapse, and believers can rebuild from the ashes on the other side, and they need to know how to rebuild in a way that honors God. Or the other option, the one we hope for, but we trust God and his good providence even if it ends up being the first option. The second way it can go that we should be praying for and working towards is that God blesses our nation with repentance. And as we see our civil magistrates bow the knee to King Jesus and become more and more conformed to his image, unjust laws will slowly be done away with. The United States deserves the judgment of God every bit as much as Sodom and Gomorrah did. In fact, more than they did because we have more light of the gospel given to our nation every day than those two cities had in their entire existence. But don't forget that even Nineveh repented. That was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you say